0: All right, so Derek, if you want to stand up and uh, read the word of God to us this you. both uh, of these? Yes. All right, the great. whole
1: thing. All right, the first one is from Luke uh, chapter 6, verses 17 through 36, if you want to follow along, Luke 6, chapter, or chapter 6, verses 17 through 36. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples were there, and a great number of people from all of Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are are you who uh, who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich! for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will uh, go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that.
0: The Word of the Lord. Thanks so much, And One of the reasons we gather together is for the public reading of the Word. There's something that happens when we read the Word together in community that is different than when we read it individually. Uh, And so I believe that God is uh, honored when we uh, do that and take time to read from the Word. And it also centers us on why we gather. It's not for what I have to say, it's what the Word has to say, right? And so hopefully I can just amplify what the Word has to say, maybe illuminate some things for you, bring some clarity, Uh, but ultimately it's the Word that is our teacher today. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, this has nothing to do with the Bible, so we're going to start here. (laughs) Okay, there is a trolley on a track. It's a runaway trolley speeding at 100 miles an hour, and it is about to crash into a market full of people and at least five people are going to die. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, five people. You don't know anything about them. Okay, five people. Now you, however, are in a toll booth or in a switcher track, uh, a station far away, and you have a lever. And this lever, if you pull it, We'll go down this way and take out one unsuspecting worker, just kind of moseying along, <laughs> <coughs> and he has no idea what's coming. So, five oops, or one. Would you pull the lever?
1: Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of yeses.
0: No. One no. In my <laughs> Good answer. immediately. What other information would you hope to know? Would you want to uh, know? In yelling distance. Are they in yelling distance? Yes. Great. Oh. Is, one Is, <laughs> Is one group saved or not? Is one group saved or not? We've got an evangelist here. <laughs> Is there another way?
1: Is the worker fixing a section of the track because if you go down where the worker is is the trolley going to derail and also kill everyone on the trolley <laughs> <laughs> there's
0: okay. other people on the, on, the trolley. Trolley? Yeah, <laughs> it's on the trolley good good, good, question. <laughs> good question good question is there a
1: stop button like
0: do we have like to pull the yeah. switch yeah like <laughs> when <it> breaks, the brakes <laughs> the big red button it's kind of like are there any other options right, right. in the time we all took to decide the trains already gone <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So just by a show of hands, and you're not getting graded. You're not. There's not a right or wrong here. It's it's a philosophical dilemma for a reason. Uh, how many of you just in your gut said that you you would pull the lever? Just raise your hand. You go to the one yeah. Yes. Yep. Okay. And why would you say that, Leah? Because like one
1: person is better than five
0: people. Yeah. Yeah. You're you're yeah. not you're not killing one person. You're saving five people, right? Well, you are killing one person. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Now this is it, this is absurd, but this is kind of the next stage of this problem. Let's say that uh, this this track is a long, long, long way, and there's a there's a very large man here, and he's a, he's a worker, and uh, and instead of being down on the track here, he's right here, and, and you you're behind him. Uh, would you push him? Onto the track to de- derail the train to no, save I'm these sure. five people. The train would keep going. No, j- let's just say it would work. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very large man. Are we
1: talking about like, the guy from Dumbledore? No, yeah. That guy, that guy? yeah, yeah. Very large
0: <laughs> man. It would work. Would you Would you push the man? <laughs> okay, why would it? Why enough? Because I feel like it's really intentional. Like he wasn't really involved and you're just involving him. Okay. You it's know. malicious. It is murder, <laughs> but but pulling a lever is not. Uh, oh, it's it's laser. Pulling a <laughs> lever
1: feels a little bit more like cause and effect. Yeah, it's like oh, this guy's just on the rail; he's gonna get hit no matter what, so I don't get blamed for it. Exactly. <laughs> it's an accident. Yeah. 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 You can watch yeah. your fingerprints off of this lever. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all
0: right. I appreciate you humoring me this morning. There is no right or wrong to this. Problem. It is a philosophical dilemma that philosophers have been debating for years and years. But I I do use this as a way for us to get thinking about what is right and what is wrong. Because today, as we look at Luke six through seven, we're going to be diving into uh, the topic of ethics and ethics in the kingdom of God. Uh, My message today is entitled uh, "Is titled A New Kind of People." A new kind of people, and. uh, but before we dive more into ethics, which is fun, uh, I actually want to just give a little bit of context for the kingdom of God and why this is so central and important to us as we read through Luke's gospel, the gospel of Luke. Um, kingdoms are not like uh, a republic. They are ruled by a monarch, a sovereign ruler. Okay? And this is a common uh, organization, if you will, uh, found in biblical times. So something consistent in all kingdoms is that there's going to be a king or a queen, a monarch of some sort. Kingdoms have domains. They have territories, boundaries, um, borders. Kingdoms have citizens that have legal rights. And kingdoms also then have laws, which is how we ought to live or need to live or what kind of people we are going to be in this kingdom. Luke uses the term kingdom of God 32 times in his gospel and another six times in the book of Acts which is combined more references to the kingdom of God than all of the other New Testament books combined. So just to give you a kind of a picture of how important, how central this is to Luke's gospel. Um, he uses it more than any other, all of the other writers combined. Um, the phrase kingdom uh, first comes in the, the book of Luke in the prophecy uh, given about Jesus. It says this in Luke 1 the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David thrones belong to what Kings. King. Okay. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. It says his kingdom will never end. Okay. And who's his referring to Jesus. Jesus. So Jesus, King kingdom. Okay. The, the first mention of the actual phrase kingdom of God, occurred a couple of weeks ago in our teaching text, Luke 4:43, uh, when it said this. Uh, Jesus said specifically, "I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. So uh, Jesus, I- I- in essence, is kind of sharing like his purpose statement here. You know, proclaiming the kingdom of God is the phrase that he chose, explain why he was sent he didn't use in this in this instance forgiveness of sins eternal life heaven or to be a moral guide he said I must proclaim the kingdom of God and so this is a central component to the Gospel of Luke and I think it's really important for us to have this underlying understanding as we continue to journey through this gospel uh, it's it's bigger than any one of these um, other um, subsection sub uh, 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 um, uh, themes such as forgiveness of sins, eternal life, heaven, the kingdom of God is a broader concept, and it's a very bold concept that Jesus is coming to usher in, and uh, uh, and that's why I wanted to start with our, the kingdom today. Anybody uh, love the book of Daniel? The book of Daniel is that a favorite? In the book of Daniel, there is this incredible. Um, narr- narrative that takes place between the King Nebuchadnezzar and then uh, Daniel, who is uh, an Israelite,? Okay? And, uh, and to understand kind of the significance of Jesus proclaiming that he's come to uh, usher in a kingdom, we have to go back to the Old Testament to see the significance of this. What happens is this: So um, the Babylonian Empire um, ransacks Israel. And then takes for themselves certain peoples. And among those peoples were uh, some of the most bright, brilliant individuals, healthiest individuals. And Daniel was one of them. And uh, they bring them into captivity, uh, into their kingdom. And King Nebuchadnezzar has this terrifying dream. And it's really bothering him. And so he asks all of his sorcerers and magicians to uh, tell him, without him giving any context for it, what was my dream? And what does it mean? Okay, Can anybody tell me what I had a dream about last night? Probably not. (laughs) Uh, So they're just like dumbfounded. They're stumped. And he's he's getting enraged. And he's threatening to kill these individuals. If you can't tell me what my dream was and tell me the interpretation, I'm going to kill you. Uh, Well, Daniel. Yeah, real fair, right? Great king. Daniel comes on the scene and he says, um, I believe I can't interpret your dream, he says, but the God of heaven can. And can tell you what dream you had. So he goes back, he tells his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like, hey, pray for me. <laughs> like, I need to know what this dream was, and I need to know what it means. Well, God ends up uh, uh, revealing to Daniel what the king's dream was. And in this dream, and he goes before King Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, I know your dream. Uh, the Lord of heaven has revealed it to me. In your dream, here is what took place. He said, you saw a large figure of a man like a statue. And he said, its head was a head of gold. Its chest was that of silver. Its waist was that of bronze. Its legs were that of iron. And its feet were a mixture of iron and clay. And he said, uh, then, there, then there was a mountain and you saw a stone being cut out of the mountain." but not by human hands. And he said, And that stone rolled down and came and crashed into the feet of the statue and, and broke it into small pieces and all the pieces blew away like chaff. And he said, uh, uh, and he went through and he said, These are the kingdoms uh, that will come after you. You are the head, the kingdom of Babylon is the gold head. And then there will be another kingdom, that's silver, which scholars have consensus that Usually it's the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Bronze would be the kingdom of the ancient Greeks. Iron would be the kingdom of ancient Rome. And then iron and clay would be that of the restored Rome, the Republic of Rome. And then the stone would be that of the kingdom of God. And Daniel 2.44 says that this, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it will itself endure forever. And this kingdom, prophesied by Daniel through the interpretation of a pagan king's dream, six hundred years ago, is what Jesus now is seeking to establish and proclaim in the Gospel of Luke. Is anybody else excited by that? Mm-hmm. Like, isn't that cool? Just to think about how how long ago this was foretold, and and for Jesus to come on the scene, uh. And to proclaim now the kingdom of God uh, should have a little bit more weight to it now that we're looking at this, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, but as we know, from what Derek read earlier in Luke 6, this won't be an ordinary kingdom. It's going to be what I will call an upside-down and inside-out kind of kingdom. It's going to be upside-down and inside-out as compared to the kingdoms of the world. Uh, Luke six twenty. Through twenty six gives us a list of the blessings and the woes that Jesus offers His people, and uh, He lists them in these passages. Luke six twenty through twenty six, He says, "Blessed are the poor, those who hunger, those who mourn, and when people hate you." <laughs> he says, "Woe to the rich! Woe to those who are satisfied now, those who laugh now." And uh, when people speak well of you okay so clearly Jesus is saying uh, my kind of kingdom is not of this world because the kingdoms of this world would say blessed are the wealthy the powerful the healthy you know those who are happy now when people speak well of you Jesus flips this on its head this is an upside down kind of kingdom and so as we get into the topic of ethics we might assume that ethics will follow suit that they're going to be an upside-down, inside-out kind of reality. So let's talk about ethics for a moment. Um, since ancient Greek philosophers and theologians have been wrestling with the question of right and wrong. Uh, what is right? What is wrong? How ought we as people live? What kind of people ought we be? And great arguments, even wars, have been fought over the answer to these questions. The The trolley dilemma... Uh, really highlights the tension between two major worldviews when it comes to ethics. Uh, One is that uh, the idea that there are moral absolutes that have nothing to do with the consequences, right? But there is right and wrong, solidified, uh, and and so for example, thou shall not kill. If you believe it's not right to ever kill, ever, then it's going to be hard for you to make this decision. But if you don't believe in moral absolutes or that good and bad is actually determined by the consequences and the results, uh, which would be called utilitarianism, then it might be easier for you to justify the means by the ends. Does that make sense? Because you're, you're, you're saving five people. Like, I'm not killing anybody. So it brings brings to mind this dilemma that we live in, even understanding what is right and what is wrong. Um, Can you even define something as right and wrong? It's a good question for us uh, to wrestle with. Some people argue, again, that there's no moral absolutes. Others argue that there are moral absolutes. But even if we can agree that there are moral absolutes, how do we know and how do we determine which are absolutes and which are not? We live in a day where um, uh, moral relativism is increasingly a predominant mm-hmm. worldview. Um, in short, moral relativism says that each person or culture mm-hmm. uh, is, is entitled to determine for themselves what is right or wrong, that no absolute authority can tell us what is right or wrong. In other words, there is no God, and that each person should be free to do what is right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> One of my favorite passages from Judges, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. As a nation, these two worldviews are colliding like a head-on collision, and it's playing out right before our eyes. Lawmakers um, all the time are struggling to make laws that both ensure freedom while maintaining ethical and moral standards. Uh, Some of the hot-button issues right now that really come into play are recreational drug use, Euthanasia, abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, illegal immigration, artificial intelligence. Um, ethically, what do we do about these, these things that are advancing so rapidly? Uh, I appreciate what John Stone Street, president of the Colson Center, said recently. He said, Technology is advancing at such a rapid rate that ethics can't keep up with it. Mm-hmm. Like, nobody's asking the questions, like, is this right or is this wrong? And even if they are, nobody can agree upon what's right and wrong. We don't have a shared worldview in that, in that sense any longer. So why is today's topic so important for us? If you don't already understand, our world is confused. Does right and wrong come from God or man? And if it comes from God, what is right and wrong? And furthermore, if we know what is right and wrong, can we even live up to it? Let's consider the world in which Jesus was born into. So he was born into a Jewish community, and he spent most of his ministry among uh, very religious people who were very aware of the law. So in our Bible, hold up your Bibles, somebody, uh, the majority of that Bible is going to be the Old Testament. Uh, And in the Old Testament, the first five books are known as the law or the Torah. And in the first five books, these are considered the most important books of the Jewish Old Testament. Uh, there were a total of 613 laws. Let me just write this down here. 613 laws. Okay. Out of those laws, there was a series of, of laws that said, you ought to do this. That comprised 248. And then there were 365 ought not do this type of laws. Isn't that interesting? It's like one thou shall not for every day of the year. It's like like literally your whole life was like a series of like, don't do this. Okay, Don't do this. Don't do this. This was the world that Jesus was being born into. And he was preaching this gospel of the kingdom in this type of religion. The word ought, however, has a lot of baggage when it comes to religion and Christianity. Uh, Many people grew up in religious homes in which certain behaviors were so strictly forbidden that if somebody were to break a rule, that great shame was unleashed on that individual. Other people have felt judged by Christians because when they don't conform to the oughts or the ought-nots, they feel judged and excluded, alienated, or looked down upon. When a person's life doesn't conform to these Christian norms, people oftentimes uh, choose rather than to face the shame and the scrutiny just to leave it all together. Uh, And then many, many people, including maybe some in this room, live under the weight of disappointing God because you can't seem to keep up with the demands for your life. And so many people choose to bail altogether. And they say, you know what? To heck with this like religion thing. I can't, Keep up with all of these laws, these rights and wrongs, these do this and don't do that. I want to talk about two inefficiencies, insufficiencies. One is that of the human will. The human will is incapable of keeping up with all of these oughts and ought nots. You see, pressure to be a good person does not make a good person. Pressure from the outside to be a good person does not make a good person. In fact, I think that over time, enough pressure from the outside for a person to conform and to be a good person will actually cause them to break. Mm-hmm. Has anybody ever seen this before? Mm-hmm. Like somebody you knew, like they were a devout Christian, they went to church, all of a sudden they just like go off the rails.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like I think that over time it actually breaks people. Um, knowledge alone does not necessarily make us a good person. Uh, Corruption and evil exist at every level of societal development, from highbrow society to developing nations with the least of education to the most of education. There is corruption, there is evil, there is sin. So you can't make the argument that like, oh, people just need more education and they're going to be better people. Uh, It doesn't actually work that way. Uh, Even when we know what is good, we are often powerless to do it. Paul wrestles with this in Romans 8.18. He says, I know that nothing good lives in me. This is Paul speaking. Mm -hmm. That is in my flesh, he says. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out, for I do not do the good I want to do. Instead, I keep on doing the evil I do not want to do. This is in contrast to uh, Plato and Socrates who would have argued that to know the good is to do the good. They, they thought, these Greek philosophers thought that if people are doing bad, it's just because they don't know. They don't know. Um, but Paul's actually saying, no, even when I do know, <laughs> I do know what's right, I actually choose the opposite. You see, we are slaves to sin, the Bible says. Our hands are tied, and no matter how much self-will, self-effort, or energy we put into being a good person to fill, fulfill the law, we are powerless to do it on our own. If you don't understand this, or if you're not convinced of this, I've got 39 books right here in the Bible to tell you story after story of God's people trying to add up, trying to do the right thing, and falling short. So my question then is, should we then lower the standard? Is the goal then just to lower the standard? Because there are plenty of people, non-Christians and Christians, who think that, you know, Jesus freed us from the law, and so we should just relax on our convictions and indulge in the pleasures of this life and the cravings of the flesh with no guilt is this what Jesus does let's take a look Luke six twenty seven to 31 Jesus says love your enemies do good to those who hate you bless those excuse me who curse you pray for those who mistreat you if someone slaps you on one cheek turn to them the other also if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Okay, let's just take this passage here, 27 to 31. This is going to be a group exercise. How many command verbs can you identify here? As you, as you see them, you can just read them out to me, one at a time. Love. Love your enemies. Love. <coughs> Bless those who hurt. Bless. Do good. Do good. Pray. Pray. Give. Give. Offer. Offer. Turn. Turn. Treat people the same way. Treat
1: people. Lend. Do not demand. Okay. hear me,
0: hear me, be merciful, be merciful, okay, let's stop there, (laughs) there's like four more loves, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve, okay, there's over 13 command verbs here in this series of passages, how might someone living with a religious framework actually read these verses, with a religious framework, Kind of this idea of like, hey, life is a series of oughts and not, nots. It's a, lot of work. it's a lot of work, right? Isn't Jesus just slapping on more commands? Isn't he just giving us more laws? I mean, it's really important to know that what Jesus is doing is not like what the law was doing. What Jesus is doing in his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the world. Jesus's laws, this is what's interesting, are actually not, however, so we've got two tensions going on. It seems like he's adding a lot of commands. And it's not that he's lowering the moral standards. He's actually raising them. Uh, Jesus doesn't just say, love your brother. He says, love your enemy. Okay? Jesus doesn't just say, hey, don't sleep with another man's wife. He says, don't even think about sleeping with another man's wife. Okay? He doesn't just say, don't murder. He says that if you actually hate your brother in your heart, you're actually guilty. Okay, So how then if people, so God, Jesus is raising the moral standard. He's offering all these new commands. How do uh, the people of God, if we were already failing to live up to these 613, possibly live up to a higher standard? Okay, That's the dilemma. That's the tension I need us to sit in for a second. Okay, third teaching text, Luke six forty three, A tree and its fruit. Derek read this earlier, so I don't need to reread it again, but just for the context, tree and its fruit. Um, anybody love avocados? Yes. Okay.
1: <laughs>
0: I love avocados. Listen, when we were in San Diego, we were so spoiled, we had avocado trees in our yard that produced fresh avocados like the most amazing avocados oh man and so I had this thought for a while Derek I was like hey I I wonder if I could actually like graft an avocado branch into an apple tree you know what I'm saying like we got a plethora of apple trees maybe I could grow some avocados at least for a part of the year lo and behold I did some quick research and they said Ain't happening. There's nothing compatible about these two types of trees. Okay. Um, <laughs> you see, avocado trees are only capable of producing avocados, right? Uh, no matter how much I, 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 I use, um, if I took an apple tree, if I use avocado fertilizer, okay, and if I like planted a bunch of other avocado trees around it, that apple tree is going to still produce what? Apple. Okay. If I yell at that tree, you ought to produce avocados. It's still going to produce apples, okay? There's no outside pressure. There's no influence that I can give to this apple tree to produce anything other than apples. The problem with religion and godless ethics is that we are no less able to produce good works out of our own self-effort than an apple tree is able to produce avocados. So if apples are symbolic of our fallen nature and avocados symbolic of the good works which Jesus calls us to produce, how do we as apple trees produce avocados? Last teaching text today, this one we didn't read because we're going to read it out loud now, is from Luke chapter seven, thirty six through 50. Why don't you turn there now, Luke chapter 7, 36 through 50. He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and another 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Notice how Jesus rebukes Simon the Pharisee. Jesus points out that according to Simon's religion and customs, He failed to do the things he ought to have done. Simon ought to have provided water for washing Jesus' feet. Simon ought to have greeted Jesus with a kiss. Simon ought to have anointed Jesus' head with oil. Jesus was calling out a religious man for playing a religious game. And then Jesus commends the sinful woman for doing something that no religion obligated her to do. This woman wet his feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. This woman, from the time she entered, did not stop kissing his feet. This woman poured perfume on his feet. And the key verse, I believe, is in verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. For the kind that highlights circles in your Bible, I think you just need to circle that word love there. <clears throat> you see, there was a trolley on a track headed straight for a bunch of sinful, evil people. And Jesus was standing at the tracks, and he didn't pull a lever. And he didn't push somebody, he jumped on those tracks himself. Jesus laid down his life for us that we might live. Mm -hmm. Jesus was so full of compassion for us that he was willing to forgive us of our sins so that we could live. And you see, when Jesus does that for us, it changes us. Mm -hmm. When we receive that free gift of salvation, when we receive that forgiveness of sins, we don't start producing new fruit, we actually become a new kind of people. Mm-hmm. It's what the Bible talks about being born again. Jesus says in Luke 6:35, "Be merciful, just as your father is merciful." <coughs> Jesus isn't building a kingdom full of of, of of orphans. He's building a kingdom full of sons and daughters. Mm-hmm. And because we're sons and daughters, we take on the nature and the character of our Father. That's the only way. That's the only way that we could ever rise up to these standards that Jesus sets. It's because inside of us, there is now an internal motivation. It's not an ought. It's an urge. Like this woman was was at the feet of Jesus. She could not help it. She was so full of love. It was just this motivation inside of her. When you're urged to love, you're going to go so much farther than any law. Somebody asks you to take them a mile. Just take them two miles. Man, if somebody's motivated by love, they're going to take them all the way home, you know. They're not asking the question, how little can I get away with? How much, how little money can I give away? You know, how much time can I give away? They're going to say, man, God, what, what's that going to kill me? Because I, I, I'm just going to go all the way with it. I want to give everything. When you're motivated by love, when you have inside of you the Father's heart, you can't help but live like Jesus lived. And then it's no longer religion. It's a relationship. Yeah. Hallelujah. Isn't that good news? Yeah. When you become a new creation, you, 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 you can't help but bear fruit. Man, I think of some of you in this room like, she's not with us today, but Kayla is among us. And she can't help but be just so kind. She's so generous. She's always asking to do something. I was thinking of Kayla today. I'm like, she can't help it. It's just who she is. There's nobody telling her like, hey, you have to do this at church today. And you have to do this for this person today. She just wants to. You won't be able to help yourself from being joyful, from being peaceful, from being patient, from being kind, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. If you aren't bearing the kind of fruit that you know to be consistent with the nature and character of God, you don't have a behavioral problem. You have a nature, a sin nature problem that needs to be crucified. Well, wow. here's what you need to do. You need to confess to the Lord, "God, I can't do it because I don't inside of me, I, my flesh is still so strong and it's raging. I need you to take this from me. Put it to death and give me a new nature." confess, and then receive God's mercy and know that you are forgiven. Know that he has compassion, he has mercy. Receive the forgiveness, receive the love of God, and then you'll you find yourself being transformed. Because once you're forgiven, you'll be able to forgive others. Once you've been loved, you'll be able to love others, Right? What oughts did you bring into the room with you this morning? Ought you be more patient? Ought you be a better spouse? Ought you be more generous? Ought you have more self-control? Ought you not have looked at what you looked at last night? Ought you give more, love more, do more? Can I just ask you something? Would you just lay those oughts down? Jesus isn't impressed with your ability to live up to the aughts of religion. Instead, would you just confess that you can't bear fruit apart from him? I think if if, if you're hard on other people, it's probably because you're still being really hard on yourself. I think if it's hard for you to extend grace, it's because you still think that you don't receive grace yourself. And so you need a greater revelation of how patient God is with you, how gracious he is with you, how full of love he is for you. And then you'll have an abundance of it to give away to people that don't deserve it. Like that's Jesus's message. We did not deserve it. So we don't operate out of a sense of, I'll give this if I think they're worthy. If they did this for me, I'll do that for them. That's not the kingdom of God. Confess it can't bear fruit. Receive God's mercy, His compassion, and then ask Him to bring you a new nature. And then just sit and reflect on the character of your Father in heaven. And then start telling yourself I'm His Son, I'm His daughter. And so it's not impossible anymore because the Spirit of the living God has brought you new life. For those who are in Christ Jesus, the Spirit of God has come and He is making you new. He is is sanctifying you by the power of His Holy Spirit. He's making you new. He's taking those, those dead branches and He's cutting those off and He's growing new branches that are full of good fruit. This is The gospel of the kingdom of God. This is the good news of the kingdom of God. We are called to be a new kind of people. Not to bear new fruit, more fruit, but to become a new kind of people that can't but help it. It's taking our oughts and turning them into these urges. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much that you laid your life down on those tracks for us. Jesus, thank you so much that where we were deserving of wrath, where we were deserving of punishment, you took it upon yourself. You didn't look down the tracks and say, are they worthy? Did they do enough? Did they pray enough? Did they go to church? You said, while you were still sinners, I'll die for you. And Jesus, I just pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. You'd make us new creations. You'd remake us over and over into your image and likeness so that we would bear good fruit. Jesus, we want to live like you, but we know we can't do it in our own strength. Jesus, I pray that we as a church, all people's church, would be a people marked by great love. Not great deeds, not great oughts, not great religion, God, but great love. That people would ask us, like, how is it that you guys are so full of love? And we could say, it's because of what Jesus did for me. And he can do it for you. God, I thank you. I praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.